place it comfortably. Morning, everyone. Um, we've just uh, completed a one-week session um, at the Stroud Monastery, and um, the first talk I gave, um, which was titled St Francis and the Age of Narcissism, I forgot to record. Mm -hmm. So I'm having a second chance to do it this time because the um, other talks made reference back to it. So if we get it in sequence, other people who hear it will make sense of it. But as you may know, to give a bit of background, is that the Stroud Monastery um, is uh, based on the um, Order of St. Clair and the Franciscan brothers live next door to it as well. Um, so their, their teachings go back to, and their inspiration goes back to St. Francis of Assisi who lived in the 12th century in Italy. And um, St. Clair came from the same um, town and they became lifelong friends and they've always been connected. And as some of you may know, um, early this year, Diana and I went for a trip to Italy and we went and visited Assisi, which is about two hours train ride north of Rome. And we visited the shrine of um, St Francis and I found it a very um, moving kind of experience, more than I perhaps thought I would, um, even though I'd always found him an inspiration. And uh, Diana bought her a book there on the life of St Francis, which I've read, um, which is called The Reluctant Saint. And it uh, describes his life in very down-to-earth kind of terms. Um, but just briefly, the life of St Francis was that he was born into a very um, wealthy family. His, his father was a prominent businessman in the town. and. Uh, and as he grew up, he had a rather privileged kind of existence and was um, actually a, um, uh, quite a leader amongst the young people in the town, you know, like a bit of a stirrer and party-goer and leading all the sh you know, shenanigans that went on. So like the Buddha, um, he came from a rather sort of privileged background, as did Sinclair. She came from a, actually an aristocratic family. And both of them gave all of that up for um, a spiritual life. But one of the turning points for um, Francis um, in his, um, I think, early 20s is that he was serving in his father's shop, you know, where a lot of well-to-do middle-class people would come in selling fine cloths and so on and fine clothes. And an old beggar came in, or a person of low status, and Francis treated him with disdain. Mm -hmm. Now, unlike a lot of people where well, that could happen to and they don't think about it again, it was, the, it was the first turning point in Francis's life towards something more spiritual life because he became deeply disturbed by his own behaviour. Like, kind of like asking himself, like, now why, why did I treat him differently from everyone else? He's a human being and he was really troubled by his own behaviour and kind of stuck there. Anyway, he ended up um, having a huge falling out with his father because he wasn't following in 
his father's footsteps or becoming a soldier or any having any kind of relevant place in life. And there was this inward movement for him towards um, the spiritual life. And one of the other great turning points in his life was that um, he was out in the countryside and in those days um, the lepers had to live outside of the city just wandering around in the countryside so they wouldn't infect other people and they had to wear a bell to warn other people you know that, that they were coming in contact with them and to stay away from them so Francis one day is out walking through the country and comes across a group of lepers and um, instead of turning away from them he turns towards them and he engages them and he actually um, tends to their wounds and so on. And this is another great turning point in his life where he, he moved towards poverty uh, rather than riches. So what he did, I suppose why he inspires so many people is that um, we're all kind of programmed to uh, look after self-interest and that here's some kind of turning point in a human being's life where he he turns towards others rather than his own self-interest um, and it's an extraordinary shift in consciousness. I mentioned during the session that um, when I read about this and I was reflecting on it before I gave the talk that I had a rather disturbing thought um, because in the life of the Buddha as you know the story of the Buddha is he lived in a privilege kind of setting as well and then the story is he, he goes outside the palace walls and he sees um, a, an old person, a sick person and a dead person and then that becomes the trigger to him starting his own spiritual life but what disturbed me is in that story there is no part in that story where the Buddha actually goes towards the sick person or the old person and helps them. Mm -hmm. And the point I was making is that St Francis at this point in his life even makes the Buddha look like a bit of a narcissist. It's <laughs> uh -huh. as though the Buddha saw this, you know, old age sickness and death and went, Oh man, this is really disturbing. Mm -hmm. I've, got to like, I've got to leave my wife and kids and go off on a meditation retreat and sort out the existential crisis. You know? uh -huh. So that's how it starts. But if you follow the Buddha's life through, yes, he did that. That was the trigger. And he gave up everything, gave up status and wealth, and then sat with this, you know, like steadfastly sat with this until he realized through his meditation practice, no self. Mm -hmm. There's not even a self-seeking enlightenment or liberation from this. It's just it all drops away. And so the Buddha's life story is that he, these things like old age, sickness and death become a trigger to going off to finding wisdom. Right? And it's after he finds wisdom that he can, then comes back into the world to practice compassion. Right? The two go together. Maybe what happened in, in Francis's life, being so young, is there was some kind of conversion process was happening um, and his first inclination is to be moved towards compassion. Mm -hmm. But as we see, as his life develops and grows, 
um, is that he also develops wisdom as well. So one moves towards the other and they're both important. But coming to um, present day experience and why um, the example of St Francis is so important in our day and age, a lot of the reading I'm doing at the moment, which I'm particularly researching, is on um, how pervasive narcissism is in our own current age. There's an interesting book I'm reading at the moment called um, um, The Epidemic of Narcissism, or The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in an Age of Entitlement. And what these sociologists are um, referring to is that through research that many people are doing is that there seems to be more and more an increase in narcissistic kind of characteristics in generations as they get older that seems to have started around about the 60s and 70s and that the trends show that it's getting more and more in that direction. So the characteristics of it are um, is the excessive self-admiration, um, um, pride, um, lack of empathy for other people, feelings of superiority, mm -hmm. and it's sort of self-centeredness. And <clears throat> it's really um, that same kind of narcissistic characteristic because from a Dharma perspective we're all on that spectrum somewhere. Some people are more extreme than others. But what brings us to Dharma practice is some kind of recognition of um, self-centeredness like we have in our practice principles and acknowledging that and then the whole practice is about dissolving that that structure uh, like the Buddha did or like St Francis did in their own different ways and uh, some of the ways that uh, there's many sort of theories as to why it's kind of developing that way but one, one theory is, is that it it started off with good intentions in the way children were parented, you know, to help them develop better self-esteem. Um, you know, they wouldn't have low self-esteem, didn't have a sense of self-worth, and it just went too far in the other direction, you know, in the way that um, one of the chapters is called bringing up royalty, you know, in the sense that children referred to as little princes and princesses and wear T-shirts and so on, so they, and, and are given too much um, material possessions, too much kind of a view that you just get praised and rewarded just because you're there, not necessarily because you've earned it. Um, and in schools, in families, all of this kind of, and along with the, the internet um, is kind of, and, and social media drives a kind of movement towards this self-promotion and self-admiration. And um, referring to it in, in medical terms being an epidemic, um, they refer to celebrities as super spreaders <laughs> of the illness, right? which is kind of interesting. And we live now more and more in a celebrity kind of culture, which is really kind of the penultimate kind of narcissism. And the reason why celebrities exist, you know, and we're so fascinated with them, is because inwardly we want to be like them, you know, or we aspire to them in some kind of way, otherwise they wouldn't get any oxygen. And so that, this whole idea of being special or whatever, and getting all this kind of public ador adoration, also 
drives, the sense of envy to be like that, which keeps the whole thing going. So there seems to be a, a movement in that direction. Um, like it says in our practice principles, um, and going back to St Francis's way of um, dropping out of society really, is that it, it's acknowledging that, that that's there in within us. There's a whole lot of books written on how to how to recognise um, a narcissistic boyfriend or something like that or a boss or whatever. No? It's always pointing out there. Mm -hmm. But the first step in Dharma practice is to recognise it in here. Mm -hmm. And like with St Francis, um, he, when he actually left his family, you know, in his town and he started rebuilding an old church, he didn't actually become a monk. He didn't, he didn't join a Catholic religious order. He just went out and did what he felt like he needed to do. So he lived a life of simplicity um, and a life of voluntary poverty. He wasn't interested in doctrine. He wasn't interested in, you know, um, profound intellectual understandings about theology. He just, by his own example, wanted to live um, to assist the poor. You know, and to assist those in need. And, um, and the vital point in here too is that it was also part of his creed not to criticise people who wanted to live a very narcissistic kind of lifestyle with lots of status, of status symbols and wealth. That wasn't part of it either. So there's no criticising others. It was just this example of um, how to live. And um, I, th I think he's, he's a, a, a great example, um, to, you know, who inspires a lot of people, as the Buddha does. And as his wisdom grew um, through his life, when he was in, in his younger years, he used to, like a lot of early Christians then, had, they had a kind of disdain for the body, and the body was kind of evil, and the soul was a the seat of spirituality. So he kind of abused his body, in a way. Um, but as he grew older, grew older, he um, started to develop a different relationship to his body. But probably many of you would be, just to finish off with, would be um, um, familiar with the, his well-known poem before, close to before he died, called um, Canticle of the Sun, which is also Canticle of um, all creatures and uh, I won't go through it I'm just summarising here but he refers to brother sun you know, and sister moon and the stars brother wind and air and clouds and storm and all the weather sister water brother fire mother earth and later in his years even brother body uh -huh. even brother body and towards the end eventually um, our sister death, from whom, from whose embrace nobody can escape. Mm -hmm. So we hear a lot of similarities between um, our own Zen practice and and the practice of um, other religions, which some people like myself in earlier years abandoned, mm -hmm. thinking this was superior. I don't think it's superior anymore. I just think that they're different ways of approaching the same point. <laughs>